Hello, everyone. This is Deb, part of the Calling All Beings podcast network, Deb's Data Dojo. Today, I'm speaking to Graham Rindle. He's the author of multiple UFO books, including UFOs Before Roswell, Flying Saucer Fever, and Dawn of the Flying Saucers. He is a member of the UFO Book Club with Priscilla Stone's Quantum Witch Cafe, has written for The Debrief, works with UAP Media, and has done podcasts on the Unidentified Aerial Podcast with the Anomalous Podcast Network. He's also interested in aviation and has done extensive deep dives on both UFO cases and aviation technology. Thank you so much for coming and speaking today. Hello, Deb. Nice to see you again. Uh, last time we, we we spoke, we were sitting next to each other in, in a cafe. I know. <laughs> so, I know. It was pretty exciting. I think, you know, I'm, I feel so lucky when I get to speak to someone who I think is just really an amazing person, first of all, and really benefits the community. Um, I feel just very lucky. Thank you for, I feel lucky. Thank you for coming to talk to me. <laughs> That, that goes both ways. It, it, we had some really stimulating conversations over the course of, well, what was it, two days, um, the, the day of the conference in New York, and then the day after. Was, it, was, it was a brilliant, brilliant time. Um, right. I was so happy to meet you. And I really, truly hope you come to the next one, because if you do, it'll give me even more incentive to do so myself. I'll be there. <laughs> if <laughs> I can afford to, I will do. It's, yes. Uh, I... it's, it's, it's rather expensive trying to fly across and get accommodation in New York. <laughs> I agree. I think that we might have to start um, doing like a house rental for a lot of us. <laughs> That would be a really, really good idea, not just for the cost, but also for people to get together and, and you know, to be able to um, communicate and just share just, you know, stories about anything, not just UFOs, but but to really to get together. Yeah. My, my bank balance is, is screaming at me at Christmas, what are you, over Christmas, going, what have you done to me? I know. <laughs> I was lucky because I've, I got a work bonus and managed to survive the holidays. But it is true that unfortunately going to conferences does cost us some money. In yeah. fact, I think people always misunderstand the people who are really passionate about this generally end up pouring and pouring their own money into it yeah. as opposed to gaining any funds. <laughs> like, oh, like, that's true, yeah. Um, it's, uh, well, there's, a, there's probably a joke which I might adapt from football uh, in the UK, and it says, you know, how do you how do you get a small fortune? And it's like you start with a large fortune, and then you get interested in UFOs. That, that's, <laughs> that's very funny and very true. Yeah. I just, you know, it's funny because I spoke to um, a longtime researcher recently. He said he bought a thousand books. And I'm not near that yet, but I think that you, is the, <laughs> you the shop we went into in New York, you were you were doing your damnedest to try and get close to that. I know, I do, I do have a book problem, Graham. I do. I will be honest. So, like for for Christmas, for instance, I got a little bit of money, and what did I do? I bought six more books. So. Yeah, and and I they're all like behind me. The people who I've are got listening. An endearing I've got an endearing memory of you. We, we turned our backs on you, Priscilla, Dan, and I. And next thing you knew, you're wandering out of a shop, and you have this pile of books in your hand. And it's worth it though, because I feel like honestly, between talking to people, and reading the books, and reading the documents that are available online, you really learn so much more than the people who just watch the documentaries like for for one reason alone the documentaries may not be accurate and they're sensationalized 
And at the very least, they're very short. You know, that they they can't like put as much in as you would get from a book anyway, um, because that you know that's not how they're set up. So they're designed just to give little bursts of information, but you can't get any kind of deep dive from a from a documentary unless you're prepared to sit through something that might be five or six hours long, because obviously it takes you much longer to read a book, and you have to have time to absorb the information and, and think about it and see where it takes you. So yeah, you're right. Well, and that's one thing I really appreciate your book. So about uh, your book. So Graham, this is how far I am in this book. <laughs> it's okay. not very far. Do you know why? This is the UFOs before Roswell. And the reason why is because your book is more than a normal book. It's more than a simple trait story. You take people on a journey of how you've researched things, where you have found the information, and your aviation knowledge is in there. So that is why, unfortunately, with the holidays and everything, I was not able to get through as far as I wanted to. But it, you have basically provided the community with an encyclopedia of information on the phenomenon. <laughs> I keep telling people, that, and people have asked me, you know, why, why did you write this book? And my answer usually is, this is the book I wanted to read. So mm -hmm. I did it in the style that, you know, if, I, if I'd found a, a Foo Fighters book, which I'd really, really wanted, and I would pride a place on my bookshelf, um, that would be, you know, what I wanted. Um, I've always left, I've always been left wanting when uh, I've read about certain things in the past. And you know, so I, I thought, well, yeah, I'm going to have to write this. Otherwise, nobody else seems to be wanting to do or, or able to do it. So, yeah. So what you've got in your hand is, is the fruits of the labor. Um, right. And, and, I, and I feel like you're exploring things people didn't explore. You take it all the way down the path, which is exactly what researchers should do. I've done that myself. Like I'll read a FOIA and be like, hmm, and I'll start looking at like other supporting yeah. evidence or other information. Um, and that is exactly what you did. But not only did you do that, but you let the reader go on the journey with you so they knew what turns and um, resources you were going to. Yeah. And it's also a case of I'm not going to leave things out because they don't fit a story I'm going to tell. Um, you know, the, the story tells itself whether I agree with it or not. Or, um, and you know, things that actually say dead ends, I'll include them. Things that don't necessarily sit with what people are thinking I'm trying to say, which is, you know, are Foo Fighters real? Because I don't know in the end, you know, what they are anyway. And that there's a spoiler for people. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I just don't know what they are. Um, <laughs> but I'm prepared to give as much information as I can and tell people where I get it from. Because I, I'm a firm believer in people, you know, sort of looking to see where, you know, I've done my homework from and, and what resources I've used. Because I want people to go and see them for themselves. I don't want just for people to take my own word for it. I want to see, you know, for people to see what context um, they're in because we've all seen information that's been cherry picked before from sources to try and fit a narrative. And then that was the last thing I wanted to do as well, because, you know, you've said there before, um, before there that, you, you know, you're interested in books, you've got a collection. Yeah. My, my collection of books goes back to the 1970s. And I remember books that I read back then were left me wanting, you know, they, they left me wanting more and I just didn't get it from the books. I, I mean, they were still great and, and there are books I've still, you know, I'll reread to this day. However, when I, I, I remember looking at them, it was always, well, where's that information come from? Because they had very little in terms of, you know, 
telling people what their sources were. You had a usually had a, a, a list of books at the back, further reading, but that was usually about it. Sometimes you had a few footnotes, but very rarely did you get something kind of very very comprehensive. And I wanted to go and chase down these documents or these these people or these other books that they were referring to, and and could a hell find where they were because you know somebody who's 12, 13 year old and has only the resources of their local library because this is obviously pre-internet days um to go you know it, it was a, just a non-starter so i got nowhere yeah. and i got really really frustrated as a te as a young teenager trying to you know sort of delve into the subject without the kind of huge resources that you have nowadays uh, you know at your fingertips uh or on your phone so yeah it was really difficult uh, a very very it's, frustrating it's... time to say that you have done something amazing and have provided an invaluable resource is to understate what you have done though. Like not only did you just, like I said, you've really explained to people where the information's coming from, but you also dispel some of the myths about food fighters. And you, we'll get to this, but you also gave some really compelling evidence for them. So let's start with some of the myths. Um, okay. Obviously, you know, I'm sure you probably explore this more later, and you and I have touched on this before, but one of the things that I know irks you is that people talk about this as German technology. Um, we've, <laughs> we've seen some of the uh, myths about Nazis and UFOs, and um, we've, we've definitely had a conversation or two about the engineer um, Alec Alexander of Lippisch, who did create mm. some very bizarre looking craft, including the triangle and the comet. Um, you know that I found that compelling. And, mm. you know, he did go work at White Sands and all that. Yeah. So but you you have some good arguments against the whole Nazi narrative. So could you please oh, yeah. educate people? <laughs> I think you, you can't just look at some of the kind of shapes involved, say like the, the Horton flying wing or the measurement comet, as he talked about, it was actually a, a, it was a delta winged um, sort of tailless rocket powered aircraft and a lot of, and some of the missiles involved. You can't look at those and then just compare them against things that people have seen in the sky since the, 90, the late 1940s and, and have turned them UFOs and go, oh, well, that's them. You know, that, that's too simple. That, that's far too simplistic and, and actually too lazy uh, just to go, oh, because Kenneth Arnold saw um, has a picture of a crescent shaped craft and he's holding it saying, this is what they were that I saw back in 1947. Um, and here, oh, yeah, and then the next breath, somebody has a picture of the Horton 9 and says, Oh, well, look, that looks really similar. So, that's obviously that must be what it was. And somebody's either reverse engineered it, or the Americans have taken a copy of it, or the Russians have got a copy of it. You know, you don't you actually, you're not even looking at the history involved there because, for first off, um, Kenneth Arnold didn't actually see crescent-shaped objects. He saw a heel-shaped object, and that's how he described it to the investigators straight off the bat as soon as he'd had his sighting. Um, it was only in later years when he was sort of associated with that, that picture that you've seen, those, everybody's seen that famous picture of him holding a kind of a, 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 an artist's impression of a crescent-shaped craft. So we've got that kind of contend with as well. But if you go back to the German secret technology, yes, they had some incredible sort of ideas about what they wanted to do and so if you look at and if you look at the the projects involved the kind of designs that they were coming up with there's some really almost futuristic stuff for 1943 44 45 but putting it into kind of production was a completely different matter they just didn't have the resources anyway um, it was it was also a very chaotic structure 
Nazi Germany. There were competing factions for the attention of people who had influence. And if you didn't get somebody who had, you know, you could get patronage from, your project went nowhere. Now, people always, you know, talk about the Hortons, about how they were, had this great um, technology in terms of flying wings and, and how it was so advanced that that's possibly what UFOs were in the immediate post-war period. But actually what they forget is that the Hortons had to beg, borrow, steal um, material to build the aircraft that they did because they had no official patronage until much later in the war. And even then, it wasn't universal. Um, so at one point, they had an aircraft which they had to basically, they were trying to get jet engines for, or at least dummies, so they could work out the measurements involved for the Horton 9, the, the flying wing that people keep referring to. Um, and they couldn't get them. So they had to basically lie to the head of Junkers, the engine department, and say, you know, we've got an order to get them. And, or, and or, yeah, okay, he said, here's a couple of dummy engines, uh, but actually they turned out to be the wrong size anyway, but that's, that's beside the point. But they had to lie to get some material to actually keep further this project. And it was only when Goering sort of stumbled across the idea that they had that for a, a fighter bomber that could do um, a thousand kilometers range, could carry a thousand, um, um, sorry, um, kilogram bomb or at a thousand kilometers an hour. And they had this project to do that. And he went, yeah, okay, here's some, here's some money or here's some material or here's some facilities. Um, and they, they, they moved on from there. But really, that they, you know, they were a very small company. They had you know, very few people. They had very, very little access to materials for testing facilities, all the rest of it. And actually, their, their aircraft designs were far too late. Um, that by the time they came to build them, the, the war was nearly over. So, and the only one that was actually sort of more or less completed cra uh, crashed, and the next one they didn't get it finished and it was shipped off to America for it to be examined. Yes, Jack Northrop actually did examine it or rather engineers from Northrop had a look at it, but it's in bits in, in the Smithsonian or, or one of the aircraft stores in, in Washington somewhere. Right. So, you know, it, it's not been hived off somewhere to, to be copied and all the rest of it. Um, it was a sort of technology that went, um, you know, didn't really go anywhere. I wanted to chime in also about the flying wings specifically because the UFO PDF created by the army, the U.S. Mm. Army, is all about chasing down the Horton brothers. Oh yeah, and the flying wing because they they thought it was the flying wing. They yeah. um, really chased them down, and it kind of just ends with a thud because they find them, but they don't have any conclusions, and they're like, "Oh, okay, so it's." probably not well, them well because they thought the hortons were going to go off to russia somewhere they thought that, that the russians had, had basically grabbed them um and they weren't sure where they were they did find them eventually um yes. and as you say what well, you know they asked them you know have you had any links with the russians and the general went no <laughs> we've been elsewhere we've been working on other things um but no there, there was no link like that but then again you can understand from the time there's this kind of like paranoia um, sort of seeping into the, into the U.S. Army Air Force and then later the U.S. Air Force. And, of course, they're, they're wondering about all this other technology that the Germans are working on. And, of course, they knew that the Russians had got their hands on some of it, uh, not a lot, but they, they, you know, there was stuff in the eastern zone that the Russians did mm -hmm. get a hold of. 
Um, of course, a lot of stuff had been brought over to America after the end of the war under what they called Lusty, which was um, the, the, basically the grab of Luftwaffe aircraft and some missile technology and some other stuff. But really, oh, you should you know, tell them that story. Don't over, don't gloss <laughs> over that. It's so cool. We were like super spies going in there and getting the aircraft put it, getting them to boats and bringing them back. Operation Lusty was cool. Tell them about Operation <laughs> Lusty. <laughs> well, it was it was just a they, they scoured Germany as as they were going through Germany. Just before the war ended, they were they obviously had their eye on stuff. Even as early as early 1944, they'd come up with a, a kind of plan as to what they need to do when they finally got into Germany, what industries they would look at. They knew certain research facilities existed and where they were. So they had a kind of plan of action. Um, and it was um, under something called SIOS, which is the Combined uh, Intelligence Objective Subcommittee. I think that was what, exactly what they call it. There was also a British version as well called BIOS. Um, but these two sort of groups basically drew up a list of, of yes, we have to look at this, we we'll have to look at that. And then when they finally got into Germany, and of course you're, you're talking from late 1944 when they finally got across the border, and then it took a bit longer for them to get into the rest of Germany. But they did have a plan, and they did look at all the kind of aviation-related like facilities, but also rocket technology, um, medical research, uh, metallurgy, the whole lower, you know, everything you can think of that the Germans were actually working on in terms of the scientific realm, they were looking at. So they were looking at wind tunnels that the, the Germans had, and all the rest of it. It was crazy. I vote that you make a screenplay about that because the history involved with that is so fascinating. Why is there not a movie about that? They went and they <laughs> stole some of those craft under the Nazi noses. Like, how did they get away with that? <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, things were dropping into the Allies' laps much earlier because aircraft would, you know, crews were affecting with um, with advanced radar, like airborne radar equipment uh, that the RAF hadn't got a hold of yet. And they were landing in, in bases in Essex in, in England or even in Scotland. So they were getting windfalls of things. And of course, um, some of the V2 rockets that had been tested were landing in places like Sweden or they were landing in Poland. And of course, the mm -hmm. Polish resistance were getting some of the bits and the, these were getting shipped back to, England, back to England for test. And the intelligence people were looking at like a lot of German equipment, either physical stuff that they had in their hands or photographs of things or from agents on the ground and all this kind of thing. Um, and of course, the aside to that is when the Americans were trying to inv investigate the UFO phenomenon in the late 40s and early 50s, they didn't have all of this. At least that's the, you know that's what we think, um, unless you go you go down the Roswell Road and, and, and talk about crashes and things like that. But they didn't have necessarily all this hardware um, and all this kind of much of this evidence. It was all just hearsay, testimony, and very little else to go on. Um, so yeah, it, it, there was a, a big difference between what happened at the end of the war and what was happening in the late forties. But yeah, the, the the Germans had a whole lot of stuff lying around because they couldn't destroy it all. They did try and destroy quite a lot of of the new aircraft that they were building or some of the new te the, the test facilities and the factories. But there was just too much of it, and a lot of the times the orders didn't get through or people didn't want to destroy things. Um, yeah, it, there, there was a lot of stuff lying around at the end of the war, and of course the Americans when they turned up somewhere very shortly behind them would be the experts coming to search uh, and examine and analyze and some of these aircraft were flyable and if they weren't flyable there was plenty of um recently made prisoner war german um aircraft engineers and technology and, and technicians you know luftwaffe mm -hmm. ground staff who were only too happy to actually put these aircraft back together again for the americans and in some cases the luftwaffe pilots um who were no longer luftwaffe were happy to fly the aircraft for the americans as well 
Right. And, and even though we've mentioned Lippish, it's worth noting that mm. some of his craft were pretty deadly, actually. Well, <laughs> so I, the, yeah. <laughs> the comet, it's basically a big rocket. The, it's a glider. It's a rocket. And it's it's a combination that's pretty dangerous. So, so yeah. yeah. And then talking about the Foo Fighters, I mean, there was there was a point where the Allies were, or at least RAF intelligence, wasn't sure whether it was one of these, uh, these comets, the measurement 163, that was actually causing the reports of the, you know, of strange lights and all the rest of it uh, during World War II. Um, but the, the comet never flew at night. It was too dangerous to fly in the day, really. And it was like a desperation move. The, the idea was... I suppose sound in so much as a rocket powered interceptor that could take off, um, could fly at sort of climb at something like 12,000 feet a minute or, or even more than that, could do 600 miles an hour. It was nudging the sound barrier and level flight. Um, and after seven minutes, the, the, the fuel ran out and it was the world's fastest glider. Uh, and you, you put a couple of 30 millimeter cannon on the front, uh, on the front of the, 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 the right of the wing leading edges, and it's an interceptor. And it's very fast. The Allies can't, haven't got an aircraft that can catch it. But unfortunately, the, the, the two fuels that are involved don't, aren't compatible. If they touch each other, they explode. So they have to be very heavily, um, carefully handled. You have to have them in tankers on the opposite sides of the airfield because if you get them together, they explode. If one of the fuels touches something organic, like the pilot, it'll corrode. So mm -hmm. you know the pilot basically would dissolve the pilot alive if it came in contact with him. Yeah, so very dangerous, which means they probably would not have done that. And we know that they didn't, actually. We know that they only made a couple of the comets, if I remember correctly, and someone... Oh, they made the, oh no, they made a few hundred of them, funny enough, yeah. Um, oh, okay, I thought it had, was just a couple and someone no, definitely they, they had an operational unit called JG400 uh, at a place called Brandis, which was mm. near Leipzig, and it was there to protect the one of the synthetic fuel um, refineries there. Um, and they, this unit was based there for most for most of the, the comet's operational life. Um, it was supposed to be developed into like a few squadrons, but I think they only had enough aircraft and enough pilots and enough fuel because they had to make this fuel um, for maybe one fully armed squadron um, at the time. Uh, so, the, you know, the, there were lots of aircraft built, but they couldn't use too many of them. And at the end of the war, for the last six months or something, these aircraft were sitting around because they were out of fuel. So, yeah. Well, I wanted to get to another myth that um, mm -hmm. I find still lingers today with some current cases, actually. People seem to think that there was only one object involved. In fact, they think it was just lights. Okay. But so that we know that's not true. In fact, you talked about at least one other shape, but I'll let you speak about it. <laughs> Yeah, that's fine. Thanks, Deb. Um, I mean, we'll, we'll just add it. We'll tag another little myth onto that as well. Uh, and the, the myth is basically that it wasn't just like lights, but it was a very kind of short period of time. So uh, for 50 years since 19, uh, December 1945, when um, a former aide to General Hab Arnold, the CNC of the US Air, uh, Army Air Force at the time during World War II, his aide had produced this article for American Legion magazine. And it, it said, you know, this is where it all started, November 1944, in eastern France, eastern Belgium, western Germany. And it was only affecting the night fighter pilots who were based out the American night fighter pilots or crews who were based out there. Um, and this myth effectively persisted for 50 years until the mid-1990s, when people finally got into the archives of these particular squadrons, the, the two night fighter, night fighter squadrons, which were based in Belgium and France, and a couple that were based in Northern Italy. And they found that actually there were more reports 
um, you know, of, uh, of these kind of flying lights, if you like, uh, that were chasing aircraft and, and causing the, the pilots no end of, of, of kind of like worries, you know, uh, because if you've got a strange light coming up behind you, which you can't, sh you can't shake, then they, they were, you know, scared out their wits, basically. Um, but the, the, the lights didn't actually do anything. Uh, they were quite benign. They, they didn't try and you know affect the aircraft in any way, as far as we can tell from the records. Um, but it did scare the, 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 the bejesus out, out of the, out the crews. Uh, and there's a story about um, one of the crews of one of these P61 Black Widows um, landing, and the, the 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 gunner or the or the radio operator rather gets out, and he's you know he's scared he's scared to death basically. Um, so yeah, it, there's a lot of that went on. But yes, going back to your question, so that this is a kind of period between November 1944 and the end of the war, and just in a, a very small part of kind of Western Europe. But actually, if you look at the records and you look at RAF um, Swadden records, which apparently nobody's really done beyond confirming the existing reports that were known about through about the 1970s and 1980s. I think people had gone into some squadron, uh, bomber squadron records and said, you know, does it, did this person actually exist on this squadron just to back up some of the stories that have been told? But nobody actually gone through the rest of the, the unit records month by month, year by year to pull out other cases. Well, I did that because I thought, well, if nobody else is going to do it, I better do it. Um, and I found a whole load of stuff. Now, as I mentioned just 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 now, there are stories that did come out in the 60s, 70s, 80s from certain retired aircrew saying that they had seen things. And yes, there are stories that have appeared in other books from 1942, 1943, 1944, but they're very, very few and far between. Well, actually, if you look at the squadron records, there's a whole lot more stuff. It's just they're not that well documented. There's references to them in the squadron logs, but unfortunately, the logs themselves were very brief by necessity, because you had to collate a huge amount of information from the crews returning from raids in a very short space of time, because the the next raid might be the next night, and they had to have all this information about flak defences and night fighters and all the rest of it, you know, very quickly. So the the records are very are by design uh, by necessity very very short. There may be intelligence records behind them, which actually go into much more detail depending on what the crews told the intelligence officers after the raids, after they came home after the raids. But those documents are somewhere else, and if they exist at all. Um, but it would be lovely to be able to try and get a hold of them because they would hopefully back up what these people say about what they saw. Um, further to your question about, you know, what happened, uh, was this much more widespread? Um, yes, there were other things, not just lights. So you've got a story of the big amber disc that came up behind a, a Polish crewed Wellington bomber in, in March 1942, which I go into at length in, in, in the first chapter of the book. You probably got that far <laughs> going by where you said you'd got to in the book. Um, and it's a, it, it's a huge thing because they were firing at it and nothing happened. But then there's another story later in November 1942 over the Bay of Biscay with an American bomber on an anti-submarine patrol um, and, and this huge disc-shaped object comes up behind the aircraft again. Um, so, you know, you've got a kind of pattern here. But then again, later in the war, you've got other things. You've got shoals of little disc objects, no more than probably the size of a hockey puck uh, falling from the sky. And nobody really knows what those were either. They could have been some kind of locally designed and built um, kind of bomblet, um, like, a cluster, uh, like a cluster bomb. Um, but air you know, airdropped kind of thing. Um, 
but nobody's ever been able to find any kind of specs for it. There's no record from any kind of Luftwaffe crew of deploying it or designing it or, or even seeing it. So we're no further forward trying to explain what that is. But that that story appeared in the 1960s through a Martin Caden um, uh, book uh, about uh, the one of the B-17 raids on Germany. Um, but there are other stories similar as well. There's, there's a, a case over Italy in 1944 where a similar thing happened, the kind of shoal of little like objects falling from the sky. But then there's other stories again of, of, of other strange objects being seen, um, ball-shaped objects, things that are described as a swarm of bees, um, and they don't fit any known German technology or any kind of weapon or anything like that, or even um, kind of the, the decoy stuff that they used to use, uh, parachute flares and all the rest of it. Um, you can't reconcile any of these kind of particular sightings to known German technology, secret or otherwise. And that's what makes this so intriguing, but also perplexing. You also describe, I believe, it's a cylinder shape. Also, some people call that shape a rocket shape, of course, which is, you know, mm. what would their their paradigm would be in the war hmm. but it's doing right turns <laughs> yeah so this is 1942 this is august 1942 i think that this case is where this one of these rockets was seen doing zigzags now you know the germans didn't have the technology to do that kind of thing and obviously with ballistics you can't really fire a rocket in the air and expect it to do a right hand turn it just doesn't do that and even there even the date concerned the germans weren't really experimenting with um, service-to-air rockets uh, missiles at that time. The first designs for, for SAMs came along in sort of early 1943, but they still didn't have the wherewithal to actually start building them and testing them until much later that year. And actually, virtually all of the projects, and they had 50 missile projects, believe it or not, uh, of air-to-service, service-to-air, service-to-service, air-to-air, uh, missiles in development by the end of the war. But very few of them came to fruition, and out of those that did, none of them were really put into um, into operational service, especially, well, the, the service-to-air ones, at least. Um, so, you know, it was, a, it was a dead end in terms of could these things have been seen, you know, under test? Well, no, because it was too early in the war. And these stories do persist later in the war as well in terms of these rocket-shaped or tube-shaped or mm -hmm. cylindrical-shaped objects, but not just in, you know, over Western Europe. They're seen elsewhere as well. Uh, civilians in it. Well, yeah, but also in the war I'm talking about um, in terms mm -hmm. of Eastern Europe, there are civilians in, 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 the, in Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic, who are seeing kind of Zeppelin-shaped objects uh, which would be under the same kind of description. There's a uh, November 1942, there's uh, an RAF bomber crew over northern Italy attacking the engine works at Turin, and they come across this huge kind of you know long object. They think it's 200 feet long or so, and it's, it's flying over the mountain valleys, and they see it twice. Is um, that the one with the portholes? Yeah, that's the one with portholes. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that, and the 80th, 80th anniversary of that sighting, you know, happened last month. So, uh, but it's not one that's really talked about. You know, everybody talks about, you know, Kenneth Arnold, or they talk about the George Gorman case in 48, or uh, Thomas Mantell in 48, but they don't talk about these for some reason. Um, I think it's actually something that um, when I study myth, you know, myths mm. and mythology and this history, um, I can't help but notice not only did we have, you know, the Foo Fighters, which we're going backwards here, guys. Everyone knows about the after the Foo Fighters, right? But we had the Swedish rockets. Mm. We had the airships. I would hope people know about the airship sightings <laughs> at this point. 
And then it goes even further. Like people would see flying baskets. They talked about extra extraordinarily large kites. Hmm. Um, they talked like they they just used whatever they could to explain what they were seeing in the sky. Um, yep. There's an old story of Japan. They this they said it was like a large bowl in the sky that they saw flying. Um, and then of course we know that the uh, um, Romans said there were shields in the sky. And it just goes on and on. Like the further back you go, there's just stories over and over of objects that are moving in the sky, including the 1500s wood carving of cylinders and orbs and so on from, I believe it was, um, was it Normandy? Uh, Nuremberg. Nuremberg, thank you. Yes. I think that the only, the only danger I see in the further you go back, and, and I understand what you're saying about how people will kind of describe things in a form that they're comfortable with or they can relate to things like the you know everyday objects etc i think the further you go back some of these representations can be artistic as well as necessary you know sort of specific and i think there's a danger that people see things that may not be there um when you've got records in terms of written record it's easier to actually discriminate between somebody's artistic interpretation of something and reality whereas the wood carving is odd for me because I'm not entirely sure what that represents. I don't know whether it is kind of you know spheres and things in the sky, or whether it's some somebody's interpretation of something else, um, whatever that is. And I think well, the there further was back a they go, news thing that accompanied that. Oh one. yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and this is the thing. But I'm still you know the further I go back, I'm I'm a little bit not skeptical. I'm just a bit worried about people saying definitely this is definitely you know this and this is definitely that um because i think sometimes things were sort of open to a slight more interpretation for the, the the further back you go but i think when you get to the 20th century then we've got reports and obviously newspaper reports from the airships in the late 19th century and we're much more definite about what's sort of transpiring in terms of what people are seeing and what they're saying they're seeing um but i don't think you get that too much when you just get a picture um, and you know, it's a kind of like, and somebody says, right, you know, we'll have to interpret what this picture is, um, mm -hmm. because we've all seen the kind of ancient alien thing where they've got that little gold medallion or object or whatever it is. It looks like a well, they're trying to say it's like a jet fighter. You know, do you know the one I mean? Yeah. Um, and yes. to me, yeah, to me, that's not an aircraft. I know it looks like one, and you could argue that it is, but to me, that's possibly somebody's idea of something else whatever that is and i don't think it's an aircraft but i might be wrong of course i know it could be also a bird which you know yeah. we, a stylized so I, representation of a bird right or so something, i think or something completely different you know i have to say i really appreciate the fact that you are always scrutinizing for solid evidence though because for instance i look at planes constantly now because not only do i drive near an airport to get to work but also because i'm looking at the sky which is what you're supposed hmm. to do if you're interested in ufos you know <laughs> yeah. so and i'm constantly thinking i can't see the wings on the plane if i didn't know that it was a plane i might think that was a flying cylinder and, and i and also yeah, Go but ahead. if you look at an aircraft, if you look at an aircraft from a different angle, so if it's coming towards you or it's going away from you or it's side on, you know, you can't necessarily see all the control services either or even see the method of propulsion. So and if you're not if you see an aircraft which might be a new radical shape, um, you know, 
you might think, well, what's that? Until you see it from a different a different direction. Uh, so yeah, you can be fooled quite easily. I mean, I've looked at things before, and, I, and I've looked at it in the in first glance. It's well, what's that? And then it comes a bit closer, and it's oh yeah, okay, I recognise exactly what that is. Um, but yeah, now, now, it, it but it's not... now obviously <laughs> the objects that we're talking about are way beyond that. Like they're you yeah, know portals all along the side, and some of yeah. these get really close to people. Planes do not get that close to people because that's very very much like a plane would be crashing to get that close. But um, so on and so forth. But um, so I guess you know it's just really interesting though. That, like there, that's why I stay away from videos and photos quite often. Mm because your eye can be tricked. Another thing that gets me is if you are someone who's serious about this and really studying, then of course you notice that the plane will look like it disappears suddenly because it's gone behind clouds that you cannot see. Like people just are mystified when an object in the sky disappears, but there are clouds that we cannot see that are there blocking the object. <laughs> so... <laughs> I guess my point is I'm glad you scrutinize these things. <laughs> well, yeah, I I think when I'm writing writing books, I, you know, I'm looking at evidence and I'm looking at information, and a lot of times I just sit and I go, "That's not right." <laughs> and, and so there's a lot, you know, these myths get built up about things, and you see myth after myth, and it just each one just gets put on top of the, of, the, of the one beforehand until there's this a huge elaborate story about you know how the, the german second technology and how they, they built disc-shaped aircraft and how this that and the other person was involved with it and you know they disappeared at the end of the war and one of them was captured by the russians the other went to work for the americans and all this kind of stuff and i just sit there shaking my head and going right i can't trace this story any further back than 1950 so how the hell you can you say that all this happened because i can't you know, and uh, I ask people who espouse, you know, espouse these theories, as to, well, where's this information come from? And the answers I get are no, you know, they're no better than what I've got. I've got, or right. in a lot of the case, it's actually just pictures of fake stuff, which is a hell of a lot worse. So I just yeah. think, you know, I, yeah, I okay. got something about a Macy project that you were saying you couldn't find any evidence for in your book, the Macy project. Oh, the Massey Project. Yeah, it's yeah. Um, that was a, yeah. So that was an alleged British investigation into UFOs, which never happened. The the the, right. the so-called the person behind it can't be found, um, and there's no documentation ever to say it did. It was something that might have been made up by somebody and then passed on to Frank Edwards, uh, who was a, a noted radio commentator uh, and also somebody who was interested in UFOs in the 1960s. It appears in one of his books uh, from that period. But can you? Hellfight trace any of it? No, you can't. Yeah. So no. And it I doesn't think, go anywhere. Know, we do sometimes create our own myths. For instance, Lou Elizondo once spoke about meeting his predecessor to ATIP, right? And the hmm. person told him about a program that was run in the 80s. Well, if you just do a little bit of research, you realize that Lou Elizondo would have met John Alexander, <laughs> who did the um theoretical physics group you know the anomalous or whatever theoretical physics group um so he did do a ufo project in the 80s so that he that was probably who he was talking about but because he didn't name it we create a myth right and people yeah. are 
yeah so that's how that works well, people hear what they want to hear people hear what they want to hear as well don't they a lot of the time not everybody you know there's a lot of people on ufo twitter who are quite rational and will you know sort of question what people say won't take things at face value but for an example you know the, the facebook ufo groups are rife with people who because they've looked at a ufo they've seen a ufo documentary that's it for them that's the truth you know they don't question things beyond that and the the, the subject of nazi ufos is a really hot potato in terms of people looking at stuff and going yeah that's true every bit of that's true you know and you, and you just have to scratch the surface to find that actually no none of it really is and when you ask people to provide evidence in terms of solid documentation for any kind of thing of the project, not just the fact that they flew, but you know who designed them. Um, can you actually back up who these people are, where people say they came from, and who they worked for during the war? Can you can you actually you know provide me with any evidence, any document that says you know this is where they were, this is what they did? No, you can't. Can you provide me with any information about the test? Whoop, whoops. <laughs> no, sorry, my dog's probably getting uh, reacting to the posts coming okay um can you get can you get um information about the testing facilities that they must have used uh, wind tunnels you know um all this kind of stuff no you can't can, is there even just something simple as a, a requisition for materials to build one of these things no you can't and yet other secret weapons projects from even from the end of the war when people say well all this documentation disappeared no it didn't there's a, a, a VTOL interceptor called the Bakum Natter. It launched off a tower. It was rocket powered. It climbed at 36,000 feet a minute. It was designed to um, fire 24 air to air rockets at a bomber formation and then break up into three pieces, each of it parachuting back to the ground, including the pilot. Now, that project lasted for about nine months at the end of the war. They fired, they actually launched one with a man in it, but he died because the they crashed. Um, they did have some setup to attack some bombers right in April of 45, but the US tanks got there before and overran the launching sites before they could fire them. Uh, but this project is really well documented for 1945. It's there's a huge there's a huge photographic record that's quite complete. There's documentation as well, um, and there is one particular book which covers all of it, and it's a really good read. So you know you can't really turn around and say, well, a lot of this stuff you know just doesn't exist, but it actually does. It's just that, you know, if you're trying to say a story um, to try and put forward a story that actually is not true, the best thing you can do is saying, oh, well, you know, it all just disappeared because then nobody can basically sort of, you know, say, well, you know, provide your evidence. It's quite convenient just to say, well, actually, no, it all disappeared then the war. Or it just, re so it just appeared go. in an envelope handed to a producer or a reporter. Pushed oh. under a door. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. We'll not go there, shall we? Yeah, or it was emailed yeah, by a, someone. That's a, that's a kind of worms. Yeah, it just, or it was emailed by someone who just happened to have the same IP address as someone who's known for misinformation. What a weird coincidence. Oh, Okay, I'm not uh, going to that. On, on the side, yeah, on, just on a quick aside, I'm not, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but I am actually reading a book about MJ-12 by Stanton Friedman. Um, uh, I'm reading that book. Um, and some of it, because I've heard obviously so much about it afterwards, uh, I'm just sitting going, oh, Stanton, God. Well, here's the problem. Okay, so this is the problem. when you, If you research the subject, but you don't research the researcher, you miss a big hmm. thing. So like oh, yeah. Wilbur, Wilbur Smith in Canada, mm -hmm. he was a part of uh, Project Magnet, I um, believe is what it was called. It was a big UFO group, right? Or all well, big as can be at the time, right? 
But then you look at what he was interested in and it gets a little weird. <laughs> like yeah. some of his beliefs were a little weird. Some of his books were a little weird. Uh, some of the writings that he did for a publication at the time was a little mm -hmm. weird. So you have to then take everything he has said with a big grain of salt at that point. Yeah. And of course, you know, because somebody has a um, an interesting sort of collection of books doesn't mean to say that what they're saying isn't true. But you do have to have that in the back of your head. Uh, when you're looking at those stuff, you have to be, you know, you have to step back a bit and think, okay, well, you know, how does this fit into everything else? But when you're just looking at some of the information from from the war that, you know, that I've used for, for, to write the book that we're discussing, I have to look at, at other things to do with the people concerned or what's happening in the area that were being talked about, um, the types of weapon systems that were being employed there. So you have to see a whole load of other stuff. You've got to see the bigger picture, basically. You can't just like you know, focus in on these tiny cases, um, you know, big as they are for us. But in terms of the overall scheme of things that are happening in the Second World War, they're a tiny kind of, it's, it's like it's very, it's like a microcosm of what was happening elsewhere. Um, and you know, to just focus on these things just on their own, you need to see what was happening around. You need to see what's right. happening elsewhere. That helps you understand that a lot of this, the stuff that's been put forward um, as truth can't be. Um, the Germans didn't have the resources to do a lot of the stuff that people say they did. Uh, I mean, there's other stuff, you know, I didn't cover it in the book, but there's other people along the lines have come up and say, well, the Germans exploded an atom bomb uh, in northern Poland, what's now northern Poland, in early 1945. And they come up with um, testimony from bomber crews who were flying training missions in the area, seeing huge explosions. Well, yeah, okay, but, you know, there would be kind of records about this kind of thing. And right. there would be radiation. The rest of it, these stories are rubbish, but you still you still see them pop up occasionally. Um, you know, well, so let's let's talk about some things that are not rubbish for a moment. We did go <laughs> down the why we need to have rational thought rabbit hole, but I want to bring up some things that are um, inarguable, so to speak. Um, okay. So one thing, for instance, that we talk about, or I should say specifically, you talk about in the book are the light colors that are associated with these Foo Fighters. Yeah. Now, people who know anything about um, aviation know that there are specific colors assigned to craft. And oh, yeah. some of the colors that are being, a scene, being seen with these Foo Fighters were not colors that would have been on an aircraft. So could you go a little bit into that, for instance? Well, navigation lights are red and green, for instance. So you have one on, you know, on, on each wingtip. But you'll have other lights on aircraft as well. So you'll have white lights, you'll have landing lights, you have all these kind of lights. But going a bit further in terms of World War II, um, in bombing raids, you had other types of lights. So aircraft would drop flares. So the, the bombers, uh, the British bombers in night would drop colored flares to mark targets. So you'd have certain colors that would actually mark the specific target, but you also have other ones that mark the way to the target, uh, turning points, things like that. And then the Germans would drop flares below the bombers, they're called fighter flares, and they were usually white, but there could be other colors as well. And they would illuminate, like silhouette the bombers from above. So if a German night fighter was flying above the aircraft, they would see them you know, all lit up. So there were, there were lots of lights in the sky, not just ones associated with airplanes, but actually associated with the bombing raids as well. And then, of course, you've got the Germans firing um, decoy rockets up into the sky as well, which were um, conversions of, uh, of uh, artillery weapons, rocket-propelled uh, rocket um, artillery pieces, basically. Um, so there was all this kind of thing going on as well. So it was a huge kind of 
different kinds of colors in the sky pretty much every night. But the crews knew what these things were. So they knew, you know, red and green navigation lights when they were switched on um, or you know, other colors that were involved for the targeting lights and all uh, flares and all the rest of it. But some of these lights um, that started following aircraft, well, they were red a lot of the time. There are other colors involved. There were yellow, there were orange, there were other colors. Even blue, I believe, there was a couple of reports for. But let's say, just take the, 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 the predominant color, which was red, especially for the so-called Foo Fighter reports over Belgium, France, and Germany. These lights were operating on their own. So they didn't have a green light with them. Um, and the red light, you know, just followed the aircraft. Now, if it had been another aircraft, you would have seen it because they were quite close, apparently. Um, but the, these things just follow, and then they flew off on their own. But there are other stories of two red lights or two amber lights following other airplanes as well. There are other stories of up to six air, uh, lights, red lights, surrounding bombers over the Balkans in 1944, and there are cases along those lines. Uh, multiple lights. Now you wouldn't just have, you know, wouldn't have lots of red lights on an aeroplane. You would have a red light and you probably have a green light right. because that's what modern navigation colours are. But a lot of the times, you know, the the aircraft would switch the navigation lights off as soon as they got into the air because you don't want to advertise your presence to that's what i was enemy. going to say i don't yeah. think they would have lights on at all if they no, were coming they up trying to sneak on someone and they did have some lights on board because you can't get you have to have lights on an airplane so you'd have these you know you would have a red light inside the airplane but um when you would have black they would have hoods uh to stop that light being shown um, so you have a you know your navigator would be like in a in a little compartment and and the hopefully and you'd have little curtains or or whatever so the light didn't show because you don't want to advertise your presence. The German night fighters had um, radar scopes when they finally got airborne radar um, on board these aeroplanes, and that would give off a kind of diffuse orange light. But the the the, the guy in the back of the aircraft uh, of the of the night fighter who was you know sort of head down into the scope, they would also have a you know, sometimes have a hood over them as well because they didn't want to, dip, you know, the last thing you want to do is show an, a, a gunner on a, on a bomber where you are. But yeah, there's all these stories, which I'm actually researching at the moment, which go back as early as 1940, of lights following bombers even as early as that. And it's in the RF intelligence records. And nobody's looked at those yet, as far as I'm aware. And if they have, it's never been put into print before. But that's stuff I'm actually going into at the moment for a, hopefully for a follow-up for that book. Well, what else is also peculiar is if they were trying to sneak up at all mm -hmm. with lights mm -hmm. or without, yeah. they would have done something. But exactly. these objects are not. <laughs> Bingo. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? The, the story smelling the one, I do actually include this in, in that book, that one bomber was followed for 250 miles by a light. Now, okay, you could argue that the Germans might have been training night fighter crews. And that would hold up for a little while. But you wouldn't have them following that far because, you know, you would whistle up another aircraft, let's say, and, and radio like a colleague and say, come in and shut this bomber down um, kind of thing. Or you would do it yourself. You wouldn't follow, for training purposes, you wouldn't follow, follow an RAF bomber for 250 miles. And some of them were followed 150 miles, 50 miles, all the rest of it. But that's far too far. And the Germans aren't going to fly that kind of distance and not do anything. Um, calibrating radars, maybe. Well, it's a possibility, but again, it, it, it there's Waste no, there's no 
well, it's not even that. There's just no stories because there are good accounts of the German night fighter force. There's accounts of the whole campaign. There's uh, biographies of the pilots concerned. There's autobiographies um, you know, written by the pilots themselves in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. And they're really good and they're good reads. And I've read quite a few of them over the years, but they don't include any of this. And of course, I can remember all this stuff. Um, from reading it when you know when I was more of an aircraft enthusiast than I was a UFO enthusiast, if you like, but you know, and I still have those books. I'll have them in storage at the moment because I'm in between houses, effectively at the moment. Um, but um, I can remember the stuff that was in them, and no, there's nothing there. And of course, I referred back to quite a few of them when I was you know writing that book. Um, and there are some really, really good accounts of the Night Fighter campaign. And they do include stories of some of the weird stuff that the, that the RF was seeing in late 44 and early 1945 as well. And it's not just the Americans. And some of these accounts do appear in some of the really good um, night fighter books. But they're as, kind of in, as much in the dark about whatever these things were as, as I am and, and the readership is because we can't make head and tail of it and so, and, and because we can't reconcile them to anything that the Germans had. Well, we do need to talk about one thing that I don't think it is. And actually, I think it's one of the best indications that this was a real phenomenon. And that is Venus. And the reason oh. many people think that pilots sometimes chase Venus because of a visual effect, they feel like the object is following them, etc. However, as you described in your book, these objects lit up the craft Venus would not have done that. <laughs> but these things were, but some of these lights were large. You know, they weren't just like a pinpoint or, you know, or like a small kind of disc. Some of them were quite large and, and some, of, some of them were in the daytime as well. Um, so you, you can rule Venus out. And obviously these are quite experienced crew and they're looking at things which are coming up below them. Now, Venus can't be below an aircraft, you know, sort of thing either. It can't do zigzags. Yes, there are certain... Um, kind of optical illusions where if you're looking at Venus low on the horizon and you're looking at it through kind of thin haze or thin cloud, it can it can scintillate, it can look as though it you know it moves and all the rest of it. And your eyes can play tricks and see and see movement. There are plenty of I know Blue Book's quite maligned in terms of some of the evaluations, but actually some of them are quite spot on in terms of you know people seeing Venus low on the horizon and their eyes playing tricks um, with movement uh, and all the rest of it. So yeah, it's a known phenomenon, but a lot of the stories that I've covered in the book, you can't possibly have it as Venus because sometimes there were multiple lights anyway. So you can't have more than one Venus. Um, there is only <laughs> one Venus. And right. It's not red. It's not red either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I do think that, um, Anyone who hasn't read your book definitely should. And in the interest of time, I'm going to get to some other questions that um, don't actually have to do with your book, if I can. Okay. Because I know it's New Year's Eve and I want to respect Yay. your time. Thank you, by the way, for <laughs> Thank you. Oh, you're being my last interview of the year. It's like awesome <laughs> finale. Okay, so <clears throat> I have a question from um, someone who has all of your books. Names, his name is James Jack. Oh, yes. He said, in between his presumably volunteer positions, visiting other countries <laughs> and eating sandwiches and other tasty <laughs> treats in coffee venues, genuinely, how does he find time to research and write so many books? Tips for aspiring writers, please. 
well, I don't have a full-time job anymore because I took early retirement last year at the age of 54. Um, so I have plenty of time on my hands. Um, but I'm also just motivated in terms of writing. I like writing. So that, that's a big kind of help to start with. You know, if somebody is getting into wants to write books, you have to be interested not only in books, but also in writing them as well. Um, because if you're going to come to them in cold and, and, and try to learn how to write, you, can, you know, you need to get through that first. Um, I'll get up at seven o'clock in the morning and I'll start writing uh, because it's a great time for me. I used to traditionally start work then anyway when I worked for our National Health Service. And it was for mornings for me were always the most productive time. Um, once I'd had lunch, that was it was downhill from there. And I find that's the case at the moment as well. So once I start eating later in the day, um, my may, sort of that, enthusiasm sort of tails off a bit. That <laughs> might be why he gave me the second question, which was, oh have you considered cutting down on the number of sandwiches? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's why I went for a five and a half mile walk earlier today. <laughs> but I did have mincing dumplings when we got the pub at lunchtime. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm if, just thinking people, you may if, just want people, you to rate more. People if, people, if people have seen me in the flesh, they'll know that I'm sort of carrying not quite a spare tire, but I'm I'm sort of I, filling I'm, out a bit in middle age. No, 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 no. I thought you were very slim. Okay. Oh, now. thank you. The, 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 the checks in the post. <laughs> okay. Well, and then also we were quite athletic that day we went pretty far <laughs> to go get some coffee um okay so um not as far as i know dan has gone before but <laughs> another thing that i wanted to hone in on um was that you had talked of, like you've said people have asked you what you think this is and i think you're like me we're just sort of open to all the possibilities however you talked a little bit about the possibility of future humans because mm -hmm. it would be such an interesting thing to go back yeah. and um be a part of some of the wars which you know these things have been around especially red ones mm -hmm. around so many yeah. wars um so i actually had this i uh, thought i had just seen this really interesting video on youtube about something called the ancestor simulation do oh, you okay. think I've heard that Yes. So <laughs> I thought I would talk to you about that because you're interested in the future human hypothesis, right? So some people think we're in a simulation, that we are essentially mm -hmm. biological avatars, right? Mm -hmm. And I was talking to even my son about this. I'm like, if the universe is expanding, is it expanding because more data is being added mm -hmm. to the simulation? And if we're in an ancestor simulation, of course, that also would hold through with the future human hypothesis that we're going back to look at our ancestors within a simulation. If, I, mean, I can't speak to the simulation because I haven't looked at that in any great detail. But I mean, in terms of going back, you know, if I was because obviously being a kind of not just an aviation enthusiast, but somebody who's interested in just the, you know, the sort of what the campaigns in world war ii for a long time if i wanted to go back i would go to the eastern front and see you know if i could sit in a bubble let's say and just watch what was happening around me with not you know like doing having any kind of effect on what was happening so you're not kind of going to have that kind of grandfather effect or whatever they, or the butterfly effect or whatever they call it um so i could sit in a bubble above the battlefield and watch everything unfurl unfurl in real time then you know i'd be in my element and i would give up watching writing ufo books and i'd do that for the rest of my life kind of thing um but 
yeah, this, or actually no, because I'd, I'd probably go back to Kenneth Arnold and sit in a bubble, you know, above his aircraft and see what he saw um, in June 1947, or I'd be in a bubble sitting next to Thomas Mantell's F-51 over Kentucky in, in January 48. You know, I, I would want to see how these things played out in real time and what they were seeing, because you can only get so much from intelligence reports and all the rest of it. And you're still sort of, in the back of my mind, I'm always questioning things in terms of, you know, did they really see what that everybody says that's what they're seeing? Um, because yeah, you, you can't just like go, yeah, that's definitely, definitely the truth, because there's always that little kind of, you know, sort of crumb of, uh, of information that might be quite incorrect, or they may have seen something. Yeah, the, it might be just something <laughs> mundane and where everybody's just hoodwinked by it all, kind of thing, you know? So you've got to have that in the back of your mind. Um, but I would love to be the kind of the you know, proverbial fly in the wall for a lot of things, um, UFO and military related. So, yes, you know, if somebody offered me the technology to go back in time and not affect things, I'll be, you know, I'll be on it like a flash. So if somebody 200, 400, 1,000 years from now has developed that technology and we've got people, you know, here, there and everywhere coming back to like some kind of reality TV show, you know, but it's in the past, um, you know, it's Big Brother. Oh, yeah, it's day 52 in the Eastern Front household. Uh, that might joke might not translate to America, but people who are in Britain will definitely understand the accent yeah. involved there. I, I feel like it's it's so frustrating though because it really minimizes who we are to say we're in a simulation, right? To oh, just, it does, yeah, it, yeah. But it also makes sense too because isn't it the same thing? Religious people are saying that we were just created and that we're just here until our souls go somewhere else. It's it's one theory on you know uh, among many, isn't it, about what we're looking at, about who we are, and and why we are here, and all the rest of it, and. Who, who knows which one's true? Um, people, you know, inevitably ask me what or what these things are. And, you know, they're disappointed probably when I turn around and say, look, I don't know. But and right. Andy McGrillan, you know, my, my friend from um, you, the, that UFO podcast, he's always, you know, <laughs> say we've got this kind of running joke way. Uh, if I appear on his podcast, he always asks me, well, what do you think they are? Um, and, you know, he's always trying to get this out of me. And. I can't say because I simply don't know. And I'm right. not going to make up something. I'm not going to kind of try and decide, oh, this is what they are. And then, you know, sort of either come up with evidence that I've found or, or make up some kind of story that backs up this, this, this narrative and then write books which reinforce it and push me down some kind of, you know, line um, because you end up in a rabbit hole. But the other thing is that the data changes um, over time. And just because somebody now thinks this is true, it doesn't mean to say that will hold in 10 years' time or even five years' time. And then they're left kind of dangling, if you like, you know, when that information changes. But then you see all these kind of, you know, they're dancing around trying to sort of say, oh, well, justify this, you know, this path that they've, that they've gone down. Saying, oh, well, I really meant to say this. Or, well, actually, the information does say this. We're just not looking at it properly. All these other kind of things that, you know, people trot out. And, I decided a long time ago that I didn't go, I wasn't going to go there, that right. I don't know enough about this subject. I might have written about, you know, books about it, but I'm no, in no way an expert. Um, and therefore, my guess, if I had one, is as good as yours, is as good as Lou Elizondo's, is as good as Andy McGrillan's, is as good as anybody who we've talked to, or and even the people who we haven't. You know, they, yeah. their guess is good and maybe better than ours. But it doesn't mean to say any of them are true. It could be something that we're not aware of yet. 
um you know it's, yeah. it's one of these things that it's not as it, it could be you know even like more than we can imagine it's more than we can imagine you know sort of thing so it, yeah it, i like to throw this know. we don't know i like to throw this thought experiment out to people um you know that we're not dealing perhaps with something that's human right so they may not have the same number of genders that we do they might have five right like just for our brains to understand that that there might be genders that are not yep. male or female is very difficult um that comes from a stranger in a strange land i didn't read the whole book but i read the beginning and he talks about another gender and I'm, like i had to you know i, I was like oh, stop okay. a minute and go yeah not and we're not talking about anything that's anything like feminine or anything like masculine guys nothing like what we have nothing like what we have not non-binary none of that nothing like what yeah. we have or and another color think of another color that is beyond what we see we can't right our brains are very limited in what we have so i will tell you also that just speaking to other people who have researched this a long time no one has the answers really no, and don't. if and when they do they are selling something that goes with that and yeah and yeah my, I, my, I've... my my advice to people who say that you know i have the answers and you see them all on facebook saying you know uh, this is what's happening and it's crazy uh, my advice is to run a mile you know because yeah, yeah as you say if, they're selling something i feel like i actually have more things on the table than i did before like there's mm. more possibilities of what's going on and some other really smart researchers have said yes multiple things are going on and i am now in that camp there's yep. not just one thing going on and when i say multiple i am bringing in things that's why i got those mythology books because there are things that we haven't even touched on in the community yeah. or embraced in the community that are connected in my opinion to this thank mm. god for people like dj who study bigfoot right within this community because people need to open their minds up a little bit <laughs> <laughs> i mean i saw yeah a few things i mean really if we're going to use the a word alien then you know, we ascribe human kind of motivations to a lot of the stuff that's going on, don't we? And your know, purpose and, and motive and all the rest of it. But, you know, if you're looking at someone that's alien, then we can't do that because who knows what the motivation, purpose uh, or whatever is. It might be something completely different uh, that we just simply can't understand, but not that we can't understand, but we, you know, physically can't even wrap our heads around. Even if we actually got the answer, we might still not understand it. So, you know, we've got to go down that road. Um, and, but the people who say you know, that they know everything, I, oh, I don't know. Uh, um, you know, I, I just, I can't, I can't get to grips with that because I can't say anything to basically change the mind. But also when you find, when you go down those roads, you've got, you have a whole legion of fans and kind of supporters who are just going to attack you. So I stay out of all that. You know, I, I don't, I, I try not get involved. It's better just to stay on the sidelines and, and, and just admit that I don't know what's going on. Um, then sort of come across as being somebody who, who, well, who, who, who's allegedly has all the answers. And we find that all these people in the past, certainly the, the, the so-called contactees from the 1950s and 60s, who kept saying that, you know, that they were in contact with this and the other being who was telling them that it was this, that, and the other, then turned out all be rubbish because, well, we, it's never gone on from, you know, it's never developed from any of that. So, well, yeah. Um, so it's, it's is it, let's, let's look at that for just a moment. 
I actually was just in a talk space with Joseph Burks, and he really leans away from abductions being physical. He mm. thinks a lot of these are spiritual or consciousness, or mm. that maybe even the act of the abduction is a screen memory. Yeah. Which is yeah. I can I can take all that on board. Yeah. And if he is someone who's been studying this for years, hmm. and Graham, um, what's his name? Hold on, what's his name? The guy that we interviewed. Ah, oh, his name is not in my mind right now. Um, the Canadian researcher Cameron Grant Cameron. Yes, Grant Cameron. He also is leaning towards like the unreal versus real debate may mm. not be so physical, right? And I had someone recently say to me, this is another hypothesis I have to search, that this, this ex consciousness thing could be beyond material because it, they may have evolved to the point where they don't even need bodies, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So like, that's just more and more stuff being put out there that just really opens more doors instead of giving us answers. <laughs> Well, you get you get you get one piece of the puzzle, or what you think is one piece of the puzzle, or one answer, and it just it just invites more questions. Uh, I always find that we get one answer and we get two questions, and it just goes on from there. So, yeah, we're, we're always going to have more questions than answers. I, I think in this, unless we we get sudden some sudden answer answer, you know, in the, uh, in capital letters that actually does tell us what's going on, which I'm. I'm not expecting anytime soon, I'm afraid. If we um, did, do of... you know how many people would just be like, no. Yeah, well, that's that's another thing as well. Yeah, they would they wouldn't believe it until it happened to them. But in terms of like, you know, trying to expand your mind uh to take on all these new concepts, I find it might just be me getting older, but I find I've got a kind of not li a limited comprehension, but it's more I just have a, a kind of capacity which I feel is like filling up. Um, you know, I've got so much going on in terms of what I'm looking at already, just in the kind of tiny little sort of corner of ufology that I'm looking at. That and it, but it's still to me, that's still huge, the amount of information I'm having to sift through um, and deal with and, and try and find more to try and sort of investigate and explain what I'm looking at, that I can't envisage or even contemplate trying to bring more onto my plate, um, you know, in terms of what you've been explaining there and, and all, the, all the other stuff that's going around at the moment. I find it really difficult, not necessarily to keep on top of all the, all the new developments, but just to keep on top of everything that's going on and everything that's gone on uh, in the past. So I kind of, I try, I, I, it's like a kind of self-restriction. Um, you know, there's other stuff I look at and think, oh, that's really interesting, but I simply don't have the time to look at it all. And I get people who come to me saying, have you seen this? And, you know, I, it's, it's lovely when people contact me, but I, I simply don't have the time to look at everything. I wish I did. I uh, and, I, think... you know, I do have plenty of spare time, but I just don't have enough. And people ask me, will ask me on my opinion on something, and I don't have a clue, <laughs> you know, because well, it's like I have never seen that before, and I and even now I've looked at it, I'm I'm none the wiser. Um, and I, some I of the feel stuff, like yes, it's okay, I'm fine with it. A lot of it, no, I'm not. I think that's why we all have to work together because you are mm. providing your service where you're strong, right? Yeah, and we all have a place where we're strong. I like to tie things together and show people the yeah. big picture. Right. I, that's what I try to do. I also am trying to help with the medical 
um, side of things oh, yeah. um, because there's a need for that. And I also noticed there's a need for the legal side of things to be developed. And I have tried to do some work there, but it's not gone that far yet. One day. That'll be my next project. But well, that's why anyway. we need we need each other. That's why we need each other, isn't it? We need right. people like ourselves and others who have, as you say, have bring their own strengths to the table because we can't all get across everything here. I mean, I know there are people who seem to be into into almost everything, um, but I'm even I'm sure either they even they can't come across everything that they've, they've, they're looking at. Um, but uh, they'll, they'll probably burn themselves out because <laughs> I think I would if I tried it. Uh, but I that might just it, be me. Well, it is exhausting, right? Because we get so dedicated to it. We can't let it go. We, we can't. We just know that it needs to be resolved. Um, and I think that's another thing. What happens when they do just tell us and it's resolved? What will we all do? <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, find so, we'll find something else to argue about. There'll be. It won't be as simple as this is the answer to everything. It'll be an answer that gets us so far down the road. Um, and then there'll be a whole lot of other questions which will come up from it, the, you know, the who, why, what. Um, and some people will take it upon themselves to try and reconcile old sightings with the new information. Other people will want to explore what this contact means. Other people, again, will want to explore the, the kind of back history of whatever or whoever or you know, however you want to call it. Get in touch with us, for want of a better mm -hmm. phrase. So there'll be a whole you know, load of avenues open themselves up for people to get involved with. So mm. it won't be just like, you know, here, here's the answer. Everybody goes, oh, great. Thanks very much. And we'll move, move on to some, uh, you know, something else. You know, it's so, funny. I, I just had this metaphor go through my head. Humans are funny because much like we give this advice before you get into a relationship, you should love yourself. Before you take care mm. of others, you should take care of yourself. Before you get to know someone else, you should know yourself. And we try to skip that when it comes to this topic because we don't know everything about ourselves. Yeah. We definitely don't show that we love ourselves. We don't take care of our home, right? Um, mm. But we try to skip all that. And we're like, nope, we want to meet them. We want to we want to be involved with them. We want that relationship. Yeah. But also as you say about knowing ourselves but we don't even know our history of ufos do we because a lot of people don't delve you know much beyond what they say in documentaries and all the rest of it and even if they do they'll you know some of the facts aren't correct i mean I'll, I'll, occasionally i'll come out with stuff which quite isn't quite right but i'm paraphrasing sometimes and all the rest of it and i have to go back and recheck what i've said or, or what i've written and then change it um because you know we're, we're all human at the end of the day but right. a lot of people don't understand the history i mean you've only got to look at the two experts oh! that were put, where were <laughs> the two experts who were pushed out in front of congress earlier this year um and they didn't really have a clue about what had happened you know in terms of 1970 you know and the malmstrom instrument did they so whereas that's a quite a major thing in ufology i mean it's a major thing in terms of defense if you're having nuclear missiles shut down when you've got something strange um, hovering over the base and yet they profess to have no knowledge of it um so your question is you know what do you actually know about what happened 30 40 50 60 70 80 years ago and if you're supposed to be an expert are you just an expert on what's happening now but that doesn't mean to say you're an expert on ufology and it you know, really how can you answer these questions like, it's sad when when they make it look like they just don't care they don't bother to bring anyone well who that was it as well wasn't it yeah 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 they just didn't bother to bring anyone who actually knew the topic 
Yeah, it's like turning program. up for a presentation for your boss about, and he's asking you to come and he's asking you to come and, and do a presentation on X, Y, and Z, and you, you've you've turned up that day and just haven't done your homework, or anything. You haven't you haven't really done anything. You you try and wing it, and it shows. Um, and it, it's just disrespectful for one thing, but it also it, it sort of gets to the heart of how much uh, you know how 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 much are they taking this seriously, and how much do they actually know what's going on. There's all this, you know, for years, you know, people said, oh, well, the government know everything. Well, actually, no, they don't. Governments are incompetent most of the time. Um, you know, it, ours, ours certainly is, or, or it seems to, to give the impression that it is. And everything seems to be done in spite of, not because of government. Um, and you just think, you know, really, yes, okay, you might know some of what's going on in terms of a little bit more information than we do. Uh, because you have access to you know this that and the other and you might have some documents squirreled away which give a little bit more of the puzzle but do you actually know what's really going on probably not you know you may just be as much in the dark as everybody else is you might have scientists who have been looking at this for years but do they know i mean i've used this analogy before about sir isaac newton you know being given an iphone um you know falls out the sky hits him on the head uh, and he's looking at a, an iphone and well it's a bit of plastic and glass isn't it uh, you know and metal and glass um once the battery runs out it's a that's all it is really it's got no it's got no other function you can't recharge it in in, in 17th century england there's no facility to do so you know if you start taking it apart then what do you get well you get a load of you know sort of uh, microchips and and other bits and pieces in it but you won't know what it is uh you'll be no further forward taking it apart and then okay don't look at an iphone look at an atom bomb what happens if some Victorian scientist was handed an atom bomb and it's got mm. a plutonium or uranium core inside it, you know? And so what do you do? You look at it, it's this big conical shaped object or, or um, torpedo shaped object or whatever. Um, I don't know what it is, doesn't what it does. Okay, you might take it apart, but you're going to kill yourself in the project in, in the process, right. aren't you? So, yeah, you know so. what? I will say you're right. I don't think that they know, but if we certainly never will if we keep bringing mm. people in who have no serious earnest True. interest in this topic and having them start with step one please yeah. there's plenty of people who know what's going on in terms of foias documents yeah. that have been provided already like yeah. i literally sent them the link on twitter i said here's the link to all the government documents i hope this helps <laughs> and did you get a reply no of course not no of course you won't but hopefully now that this this new project and they've got this mandate to go back to was it 1945 now um and i presume that's the trinity case i, I don't know whether there's actually any specific reason why or, or case that they're looking at that they want to start with uh, patient zero kind of thing but that's encouraging but you hope that's not a, some kind of uh, public relations exercise well, you know, I don't know. I don't know. And then, of course, there's know. always the whole psyop. It could be that they just want to cover up more tech mm -hmm. things. But this is an awfully expensive, awfully doing weird psyop. They don't need to do that. Well, you don't, don't need to do need it for to... things. They don't need to do it for things that were, were around 70 or 60 or 70 years ago. Because right. that technology must be now superseded. They don't need to do that. They don't need to have paid 22 million for OSAP. They don't need to have created a Pentagon book. They don't need to have, you know, shown us the newest, you know, <laughs> craft that they have, um, you know, and, and then not 
show us the propulsion system at the same time i heard and about why, that and, and if you have all this kind of really secret technology that does wonders why are you then spending money on more conventional stuff why are you spending still money on jet fighters you know right. which in the overall scheme of things aren't anywhere near what they're looking at why are you still building f-18s why are you still having aircraft carriers which cost billions of dollars um right when you've got a when you've got a, a cuban a spear or, or a tic tac you know, kind of thing. Why? Why are you spending all this money and all this time and all this energy on building stuff which is obsolete? Right. Absolutely. And you know, there the fun thing is to look at the parallel tech. You know, it is mm -hmm. fun to see what we try to do to mimic, so to speak, the UFOs too. Uh, it's funny to to see how we get closer and closer to this thing that we've talked about. You know, I, I've told people that you can they can buy their own flying saucers now. Like if you want to get strapped into one, it's basically a drone. But, you know, it's mm -hmm. it's possible. Yeah. Um, but it is just all like a big, complicated, convoluted mess, <laughs> you know, and, and it would really benefit us if people knew what they were doing when they start unraveling this mess. <laughs> I think people, if if somebody came into the into the subject cold today, I, I you know I don't envy them basically because there's so right. much to take on board. Um, even just if you, even if you just look at the modern day stuff, it's quite bewildering how much information's out there about what's happened since say 2017. Um, so it's quite daunting. But then you've got then a his, an 80 year history, 75, 80 year history beyond that to actually get to grips with. So I can understand why some people might just think, oh, it's all too much uh, because people's, you know, some people's attention span isn't that long anyway. I don't uh, know. So it's I a, feel... lot to, a lot to take in, into account, but. Uh... I disagree. I feel like if you don't get caught up in the weeds and you just notice all the trees and pay attention to the fact that you're looking at a forest, you get quite a bit further. You know what I mean? Like people get caught up in the little individual cases. And yeah. um, I think it's enough to know thousands of people have seen saucers. Yeah. I think that done, established, move on. <laughs> you know, I just think I, I, I remember people I used to work with um, and, you know, some of them, not everybody, but some of them, if you talked about certain subjects, their eyes would just glaze over because, you know, they couldn't take on board what you were talking about. One, that either they had no interest or two, it was a case it was something that was just beyond you know, their capability maybe to think about, you know. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. But I'm well, sure we'll, just... we'll have people like that in our lives and also in, in our workplaces. Well, I have one more question for you. Um, well, besides the obvious one about what you're up to, but um, yeah, okay. so there's a rumor that some files were just mysteriously added to the Ministry of Defense that um, oh, yeah. were just recently <laughs> just sort of dropped there, added. Yeah. Could you just speak on that momentarily? I'm sure you know more about that than I do. Well, yeah, I mean, we found out that it was obviously one of our members from UAP Media UK's David Clark, who's our effectively one of our UFO fire experts, if you like. He, um, and he's he's a former journalist. He, he was in, he was involved with the Calvin case. He's been you know sort of really really involved with that. And he's got a relationship with the National Archives here in the UK of long standing. So he was involved in getting um, MOD information out of them back in the in the well last decade. Sorry, the 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 two thousands. And then every so often, they are, the, the, sorry, the National Archives were releasing 
documents on behalf of the Ministry of Defence. So we've had these tranches of files being released and they were back in sort of 2006, 2007, 2008, you know, back then a bit earlier as well. But this last lot has just dropped without any kind of ceremony uh, and Dave found out about it. So us, um, those of us at UAP Media were, were, you know, obviously were colleagues and he told us about this. Now, I haven't actually, because I'm working on some other stuff, I haven't actually had time to go through them, but my colleagues have. And it's some of it's a kind of, you know, reasoning why they don't want to tell people things. Um, and it's all very, very weird. Now, basically, you know, direct people um, to some of the tweets that uh, and some of the other information that some of my colleagues, um, Vinny and, and Dan, have have put out and they've gone into things in a little bit more detail than I have uh, just now um, that they're across this much more than I am. Um, in, the, in the new year, I hope to actually go into the archive myself and dig out this information and read through it properly so I can sort of, next time you ask me ask question, I can tell you a bit more about it. But I've, yeah, I would like it's to weird. Definitely... I'm going to have you come back, Graham, because I'm going to want to talk about this. Another thing I want to talk about is the Queen's husband, who oh, yeah. was interested in the UFOs and do you like do we think that maybe these documents were dropped because unfortunately the queen passed and some things were finally allowed to be let go I don't or know do you want to or well the government the government in this country have a habit or have had a habit of trying to bury bad news when a major news story breaks there's been history they've had history for that um so the best thing in the world if you want to drop a you know a whole load of documents which you don't necessarily want people to know about is to do it when there's a big news story like the, the queen dying or something like that i'm not saying there's any kind of conspiracy theory about that but you know that yeah. would be a great way of hiding stuff but i don't think that's the case here i think it's genuinely a case that they've for some reason they've decided okay we'll do it now um but the from what the, the few documents i've actually had a look at some of the kind of you know the reasoning is is interesting but I, i'd i'd in, invite people to go and search them for, for themselves because they are available um you just go on the national archives it's uh mm. the, the, the the website and you'll be able to find them put a search in for ufos and they've actually got a page um even before you get to where you can download the files where you can actually see the the kind of history of their releases and the you know the, what they class as their motivation for doing it and all the rest of it. It's quite interesting in itself, and the, and they do point to various records. So you can go and find the, you can go and find all the releases and the places where these um, the, the types of file structure where all these um, records are held. And it's it's fascinating in itself. Never mind the records um, themselves, but just to have a look at you know the, the reasoning all behind it is good. You it's know, really good. It really is. It's fascinating. It really educates you about the topic to read documents like that. I read almost every CIA one. Um, I read, of course, the the armies. I read um, some of the FBI's, and then I realized most of those were hoaxes that they were dealing with. And I, like, obviously, everyone yeah. read the um, guy hotel memo. The hotel uh, menu, the FBI yeah. memo. Yeah. Yeah, that one is kind of, but it's still just people speculating, right? So yeah. the FBI ones are not super strong. Oh, but the beginning of the FBI ones are really interesting. Hoover trying to get the saucer from the Roswell crash. Loved that part without success, of course. <laughs> They're like, no. 
you go back the, you go back the cia ones and just a, a link with a, well not the food fighters but the nazi ufo so people come across this one where george klein is is mentioned and he's supposedly somebody who's in the war in the um the war ministry in germany in during world war ii he supposedly but then again people can't trace him and he's supposedly again inverted commas at the uh, test flight of a disc in february 1945 and then he appears the first time he ever really appears is in a newspaper report in the early 1950s where he's giving interviews to reporters who are asking for a story. Uh, it's probably people who he knew or he's managed to get himself somehow you know, in front of a reporter um, on, a, on a magazine or, or a newspaper. And of course, these are foreign language publications and the CIA did troll foreign publications for anything. Right that could relate to maybe technology which you know the americans weren't aware of or stuff that the russians might have got a hold of and this newspaper report and i think it's from 1950 yeah it's from 1954 comes up in a german um publication called uh, welt am sonntag uh, world on sunday and um it uh, it, it talks about him being you know involved with all this this diff technology but it's all you know it's all here so it's all basically probably down to him uh, and it's got no there's no cooperation but it appears in the cia document because it's a translation of the original and people say oh well here's the proof and the german that flying saucer kind of you know they built them and it's no it's not it's a newspaper report it's a translation right. it's the cia just saying this appeared in a, in a newspaper here's some information check it out and that's you know all it what is. though those yeah. CIA documents tell you so many things. Like they tell you about Carl Sagan being asked mm -hmm. to start the Russian UFO group. Um, they tell you about they were lying to a congressman about UFOs and trying to get them off their back. They talk mm -hmm. about the U.S. Air Force wanting to um, release to the public Blue Book and all that stuff mm -hmm. and like going back and forth on that. You wouldn't know that if those FOIAs weren't there. There's some like, oh. deep, rich history well, in those FOIAs. Is, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, it's a lot it just, more than objects in but, the sky. But I think the thing is that, you know, just because it's down in a document doesn't mean it say it's true. That's the only thing. And those, you know, those of us who basically look at documents religiously, you know, and I'm, I suppose I'm one of them in terms of looking at things, oh, well, it's a document, it must be true. But actually, no, it's not. Um, you know, you have to take some of them with your, with your proverbial grain of salt, you know, and, and just because somebody's written it down, because there is another document that's about from the same time. And it's again, I believe it's another CIA document that talks about the Germans, uh, the Russians, sorry, having a fleet of Horton, and we're going back to the flying wings again, Horton night fighters in, in the early 1950s, um, having 1,800 of them at, at a, you know, at, out in bases out in the Far East. Well, that never happened. So, but then it's down in a document, you know, so, so that's faulty intelligence. But right. because, you know, it's in a document, then people extrapolate from that. And then that's, again, it's more ammo for the people who think that the that, that Horton Flying Wings are to blame for a lot of sightings in the, in the late 40s, early 50s. Uh, but no. Well, for those who are listening, I would definitely uh, encourage you to explore these things. Like I said, you will discover things that you would not believe. I was so amazed by some of the things that were in there whether or not they're 100 true i suspect some of them are by the way like carl sagan being asked to start mm. a ufo group in russia i think that was true by the way um you know there's things like that it's almost worth a book in and of itself some of those side stories the you know the alien space message guy who probably saw the avro car the person who came up with the grid system um and the theory about ufos are 
you can trace them by the grid system. Like that stuff's in there. Mm. It's so many cool stories about humanity dealing with this topic. But speaking of <laughs> stories, <laughs> what are you writing next, Graham? Where can people find you? What is your next project? That is your final question on this New okay. Year's Eve. Thank you. Um, so um, some people will know that I've actually finished because I'm obviously these books I've been writing and they're kind of following a chronological path. So the, the Foo Fighters book was 40 to 45. Uh, Dawn of the Flying Saucers, which I wrote not quite in sequence, that was 46 to 49. Flying Saucer Fever is 50 to 52. Well, I've actually finished the 53 and 54 book. So again, it's more aerial cases and talks about and, and talks about investigations at the time as well. So continuing the theme here, that's out. Uh, it's not out, it's finished. Uh, I am in a holding loop at the moment waiting for Dan and Olaf to come up with a cover again. Um, so I'm sure they're, they're either thinking about what they're going to do or they're working on it at the moment. Hopefully that'll come to me back um, sometime in the new year, early in the new year. And that book will be out as soon as that happens. Um, and I am now working on the 55 to either 56 or 57 book, depending on how much information. But at the same time, I'm also working on a, um, a sequel to the Foo Fighters book because in the, in the National Archives last year, I was in down there in October and I came across a huge amount of information from an early part of the war um, about lights following aircraft. So I'm still going through hundreds of pages of intelligence documents at the moment. And the book, the stuff that's in that, that Foo Fighters book that I wrote is only scratching the surface of the RAF bomber units uh, logs from the war. Um, I probably looked at, I don't know, 20 or 30 different squadrons. And there are, you know, there's well over 100. So there's a whole load of records, which I still haven't looked at. I didn't have the time to do it. Um, I could have been at it still now, and that book wouldn't have been out yet. So um, oh, I've got like, to revisit is, some of those. <laughs> it is <laughs> exactly truly what's... an encyclopedia <laughs> of knowledge for anyone who wants to look up a Foo Fighter Sorry, case. Mate. I actually tell people in my, because I have a Facebook group too, um, when they bring up Foo Fighters, go see Graham. Go talk to Graham. Oh, He's very friendly. Ask him questions. <laughs> He's so got that, a that's book. Where, that's, where, that's, where, that's where all the book sales are coming from at the moment. Thank no. you very much, Deb. Yeah, no, I'm sure it's your, it's your own merit also, the fact that you're present for people and can help people with this information. Um, I do so, what I can. I mean, I can't supply the answers because, you know, in terms of what they are, because I don't know. Um, and I don't even know if there's a correlation between things people are saying at the moment, you know, the things that people are called orbs. Um, and some people are saying, oh, these are the same things. Well, I can't see how you can say that's true with any, you know, you can make a definitive statement on that because we just don't know. We don't know what was happening in World War II in terms of, you know, these um, these kind of balls of light, if you like, uh, and the things that are being seen now. They could be completely different where ascribing kind of things that we see um and, and just like saying oh well they look the same so therefore they must be the same it's not as easy as that you, you can't make that kind of you know jump um unfortunately without and much more information get, we didn't even get to the jump of some of them being alive so <laughs> that's, a whole that's another topic. question Natalie. yeah another topic <laughs> um so yeah maybe when when we come back we can just in, like talk about foyers and talk about living yeah. ufos but i think you'll definitely have to come back i greatly enjoyed speaking to you can oh, you please you. let please let people know where they can find you okay so i'm mostly active on twitter so at border 750 
Um, and really, you go into there, you look at my profile, and you'll see, you know, you can find everything else from there. That's that's the best place. Um, and yes, my direct messages are usually open. Uh, they're, ne they're never they're never shut. So if anybody wants to ask me a question, then feel free. I can't. The only thing is, I can't guarantee I can give you any any solid answers. Well, it seems to me that you remember almost everything that you run across and you are very good at retrieving information. I was listening to one of your podcast episodes in pre preparation for today. And I was like, man, he just has all of those dates and all of that data just right there. And I, I would like muddle it up. I couldn't even remember Grant Cameron's name earlier. Okay, so <laughs> that's amazing. I think, I, think, I think some things are just burned into my, into my mind because I've, I've been you know, researching them so deeply that you can't, you can't get them out of your head again. So yeah, it, it's, yeah that, that's my answer and I'm sticking to it. Well, there we appreciate you so much. And again, thank you so much for coming today. And You're thank welcome. you for everyone who listened. This is Deb, the host of Deb Deb's Data Dojo on Calling All Beings Podcast Network. Um, if you guys need to find me, you can find me at Study of UAPs on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, so on and so forth. Um, I'm with Calling All Beings on YouTube. And of course, I'm part of the UFO Connector and UAP Medical Coalition. Take care and Happy New Year to you, Graham, and everyone else. Happy New Year to you and everybody out there.